All right, guys. Today we're going to be doing UFC Austin predictions. I, I was going to call this UFC Fight Night 208, but apparently this is not Fight Night 208. Fight Night 208 is next weekend between Mateus Gamrot and Armin Saryukian, which phenomenal main event, really great card there. But I guess this is just called UFC Austin, UFC Fight Night Austin, whatever. Um, in the main event... It's in the UFC's featherweight division between the number four ranked Kelvin Kada, the Boston finisher, going up against the number seven ranked powerhouse and knockout artist in Josh Emmett, who comes in with a record of 17 and two. Kada on the other side comes back with a record of 23 and five. Co-main event is a rebooking of the US, of the fight between Joe Lozon and Donald Cowboy Cerrone. Obviously, Cerrone had to pull out of the last fight, which was, I believe, three weeks ago. Was it at UFC 274? I think it was UFC 274. Um, pulled out the day of the fight due to food poisoning. Um, he doesn't know exactly what he got it from, but he said it was the sickest he's ever been or one of the times he's been the sickest in his entire life. So we're going to get that co-main event. So you got Cowboy, you got Kelvin Cater. You got Joe Lozon, who I believe worked with Jake Manini in the lead-up to this fight against Cowboy. So Jake's going to have two fighters on this card. Um, we've also talked to Jake Manini on the podcast before. You guys have – I don't know if you've heard the interviews, but I believe there was two interviews and then a UFC 259 prediction show, which is actually one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done. And I'm um, hoping to get those guys back on again whether it's Rob, whether it's Kelvin, whether it's Tyson, whether it's Jake. I'm looking to get those guys back on again soon. Looking to work out something with Eric Nixick soon. So we're going to see what is going on and how the cookie crumbles. But um, forgive me because I sound like complete and utter dog shit, but I'm super sick right now. <laughs> no COVID, but uh, we didn't come here to talk about me. So we're going to get into the predictions. Last week. We did good. I mean, we did all right. Um, I got the main event right with Yuri Prohaska and Glover Teixeira. I'd actually kind of like to do that recap on a separate episode because UFC 275 was definitely the card of the year. It's a card where I believe we should have got two new champions. We definitely got the one in the main event in Yuri Prohaska with that late fifth round bulldog choke style rear naked choke with about a minute left in the fifth round after he was probably going to lose a decision to Glover, who's one of the toughest motherfuckers I've ever met, or not ever met, but I've ever seen in MMA. And then Tyler Santos and Valentina Shevchenko. Um, I scored the fight three rounds to two for Santos. I think she used her grappling extremely well. I think she controlled the top position. Did she do a lot of it with in terms of ground and pound? No. Um, she did get the back of Valentina and almost choke her out. Um, obviously, Valentina won the fifth round, just dominated her. The fourth round was very close. You could give the fourth round to Valentina, too, because she was super active on the feet. But once she got taken down, she again gave up her back and got controlled from the top position and just outworked. Um, I think you could give Val Valentina the fourth and the fifth for sure. She definitely got the fifth, no doubt. But in my opinion... Tyler Santos won the first three rounds. I scored a 48-47 for Tyler Santos to become the new UFC women's flyweight champion. Had a bet on her, too. 
Uh, nothing in a parlay. Well, actually, yeah, I ran a parlay for her to win by decision. That was uh, later on in the card, but I had a straight-up bet on Santos. Should have cashed, but it is what it is. Uh, Fialho was the one who kind of shit the bed for me last week. I think that was for a lot of people, too. I think overall I went 5-2, and 4-2 and two in the pick. Or it was either 4-2 and two or 5-2. and two. I think it was 5-2. and two. Let's see. I don't know if I have it saved. But, yeah. Okay, so I had Yuri. I had Tyla. I had Zhang Wei Li, which looked really good for me. I had Fialho, and I had Jack Della Madalena. And then on the prelims, I had Brendan Allen. So we got Allen, Madalena, Zhang Wei Li, and Yuri Prohaska. Fialo and Santos obviously got wrong. So four and two. Should have been five and one, uh, in my opinion. I mean, obviously, Fialho. Jake Matthews looked incredible. I mean, you can't really say anything bad about Jake Matthews in the way he performed. He came out of the gate looking like, one of the cleanest strikers you've ever seen, and he had been gone for two years. Uh, I believe two years. No, a year. A little over a year, not two years. But he came out and shut a lot of people's mouths saying that he wasn't that impressive, and he was at the tail end of his UFC career, 10-5, and five, wasn't going to make it, and he shut Fialo down. Fialo's a dangerous guy, but I think a lot of people are going to cool off on Fialo now going into his next fight and everything after that. Not because I think that Fialo's a bad fighter. I don't. If anything, I've praised him a lot in his career, or at least his UFC career so far. But he doesn't really like getting pressured. And if you're a technical, clean striker, you can probably have your way with him. I mean, we saw it with Michelle Pereira. He won the decision pretty clearly. And then you also saw it with, I mean, look at the Fialo and... Uh, my God, look at the Fialo and Matthews fight from this past weekend. And, uh, I mean, look at how good he looked or how, you know, not how good he looked. I'm sorry, man. I'm just speaking in circles here, how good Matthews looked and how much trouble Fialo had countering a clean technical striker with good distance management. It's no windup on the shots, and it's managing your distance. If you can do that against Fialo and have some power and pop in your shots, you're going to give him a hard time. I don't necessarily know if you'll finish him like Jake Matthews did, but you can kind of pick him apart, and I think that's something that we saw, kind of the chink in the armor of Fialo uh, at UFC 275. Zhang Wei Li looked incredible. I mean, she... Basically, whitewashed Joanna with that second round knockout. And it was fantastic. I mean, in the first round, she should have finished her in the first. Taking her down at will. Landing her shots on the feet. Landing the kicks. Landing the punches. Taking her down. I mean, I told you guys before the fight that the wrestling from Zhang Wei Li was going to be a huge problem. And everybody came back. And everybody on the other side who... I can't believe how many people picked Joanna. I'm not saying that I don't think that... I thought the fight was going to be more competitive. I did. But the wrestling was a big glaring hole in the game of Joanna. And she has good takedown defense. That's 100% for sure. But Wei Li is the strongest competitor that uh, that Joanna had ever fought. And she tossed her around, controlled her, landed vicious ground and pound, pieced her up, landed shots on the feet, 
And then she goes with a lead leg sidekick to the stomach, which we know Whaley loves sidekicks uh, from that lead side. She throws them in a lot of her fights. Through that lead leg sidekick, Joanna kind of backed off, and then she used the distance that was covered by that kick to step forward and use the momentum to land a spinning back fist as Joanna tried to close the distance. So normally if you throw that front leg sidekick, they're going to step off to the side and parry it or catch and parry. And then when they get off on that dominant angle, probably in a southpaw stance, if you're an orthodox, so they could get that outside foot, they're going to get off on that angle and then come down the center with a straight left, come around the side with a right hook or step off on the angle and then look to body lock you and take you down or just get into that position. So Joanna got hit with that sidekick. Boom. Joanna kind of looked to move forward. But what Wei Lee did is she used that momentum to transition into a spinning back fist and landed right on the ear of Joanna and she face planted and that was it. So second round knockout via spinning back fist for Zhang Wei Lee. She's definitely going to be fighting Carla Esparza next. I know Esparza is like, well, I'm the champ and I don't necessarily think that I have to give Zhang Wei Lee a title shot and you know, I'm the champ and it's my decision when we're ready to go and I'm not ready to go yet. And listen, whether it's in five months or a year, Zhang Weili is going to obliterate Carla Esparza, literally obliterate her like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre obliterates the butcher shop. Like it, it's, it's not even going to be close. I would 100% bet on Zhang Weili by finishing that fight, unless the line is just crazy, because I have a feeling Zhang Weili is going to open as like a minus 300 favorite. At the low end, I think she'll be minus 300 when that line comes out. High end, I can see minus 450, 500. Now, that's disrespectful, especially for a challenger who's not coming into the, the fight as a champion. But, man, Zhang Weili is going to be the next women's strawweight champion. And I think that since they're more than likely not going to run back Rose and um, they're not going to run back Rose and Carla because that rematch was just awful. But I think what they're going to do is they're going to do Marina Rodriguez versus Rose Namajunas as like a co-main event or feature bout on the pay-per-view. And then they're going to have Carla and Wei Li up on the top of the card, probably a co-main event. So I think it could be feature bout Rose and Marina Rodriguez, and then co-main event, Zhang Weili and Carla Esparza. That's how I would map it out. I think that's what we're going to see from that division. Joanna retired. Um, thank you, Joanna and Jacek, for being the most extra exciting fighter in the women's strawweight division, for being one of the best and most entertaining champions we've ever had in that division. I can't say you're my favorite because my favorite's always going to be Thug Rose, but you're definitely up there. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the best in your career after fighting. And uh, I think I speak on behalf of everybody who's a fan of mixed martial arts. Like when I said exactly what I said already, you know, thank you for everything that you've done for mixed martial arts. Thank you for putting that strawweight division on the map. And thank you for making women's MMA be must see in the Premier League in mixed martial arts. All right, enough of the sappy stuff. Let's get on to the predictions for UFC Fight Night Austin. All right, predictions for UFC Austin. We're going to start off in the middleweight division. 
the battle between Roman Dolidze, who comes into the fight with a record of nine victories and one defeat, going up against Kyle Dawkins. Now, he comes back on the other side with a record of 11 and 2 and 1 no contest. So 9 and 1 for Delidze, 11 2 and 1 no contest for Kyle Dawkins. Um so Dawkins fights out of primarily the southpaw stance. He likes to throw that right hook, the straight left down the center. He had that controversial fight against Kevin Holland who also fights on this card. We'll talk about him in a little bit. He had a controversial fight against Kevin Holland where they both came in to close the distance. I think Dawkins was going to get a body lock and, you know, Holland tried to meet him head on and he literally met him head on. They clashed heads. Uh, Kevin Holland went out, face planted for a second, but woke back up. Dawkins, since the ref didn't jump in, he jumped on him, went to lock up a palm to palm guillotine and uh, almost got it. They kind of scrambled out. There was a little scramble for position. Dawkins was able to take the back, get his hooks in, and lock up a standing rear naked choke and get the submission. So Dawkins submitted Kevin Holland, but the fight was called a no contest due to the accidental clash of heads and the fact that, you know, Holland basically got knocked out. I'm a little bit surprised that Holland is not fighting Dawkins on this card. I know Holland's back down at 170, so it, it wouldn't make any sense for him to fight at middleweight again. But I think Dawkins and Holland is would be a, is definitely a fight to run back in the future if Holland does decide to go back up to 185. But we'll see if that takes place. Delidze, nine, like I said, 9-1 and one overall as a professional mixed martial artist. We're going to pull up the... UFC on ESPN. So this event is UFC on ESPN 37. So I already talked about how I thought it was UFC Fight Night 208, but it wasn't labeled as that. So this is UFC on ESPN 37, Cater versus Emmett. So uh, Roman Dolidze, here we go. Where is it? Oh, it's the first fight on the card. All right, Roman Dolidze, 9-1 overall. He's got four KOTKOs, three submissions, and two decisions. The one loss is by... Uh, decision coming to Trevin Giles. So Roman Delidze lost that decision to Trevin Giles. That was up at light heavyweight, I think. I could be wrong, but I think that fight happened at light heavyweight. Let's see. I mean, Giles is a middleweight, but for some reason I thought it was light heavyweight, but I'm, I'm probably wrong there. So Delidze lost to Trevin Giles. He got dominated there. He's coming off a of wins over... Loriano Starpoli, which was his last fight. That was on June 5th, 2021. He won via unanimous decision at UFC Fight Night 189. Um, that fight was awful. You know, he it was a lot of getting into close range, controlling in the body lock, working up against the cage, looking for trips, inside and outside trips, but really just looking to control position and not looking to finish the fights. Staropoli came back later in the fight and was landing some good shots on the feet. But every time Delidze was able to shoot those takedowns or get in on the hips of Staropoli, he was able to take him down and control him and work from that top position. You know, he it was a lot of control for Delidze. And then against Kadis Ibrahimov, he won via first-round TKO. Now, look, I know he got a TKO there. That was a big win for him. But... Ibrahimov is definitely not a high-level fighter. 
And uh, I think that fight was the one that was at light heavyweight. And, uh, so I think I was wrong. Giles versus Delidze was at middleweight, but Ibrahimov, I believe, I think that was at light heavyweight. That was in July of 2020. So you could just see from the fight, Ibrahimov just wasn't there. His his striking wasn't there. He was kind of plodding forward. Delidze was landing a lot of right outside low kicks from orthodox and then left inside low kicks and trying to land left high kicks from that southpaw position. He had decent footwork, good lateral movement, good in and out, you know, control of the distance. But he ended up catching Ibrahimov stepping in with a left high kick. The knee collided with the chin, dropped him, jumped on him, and got the TKO. So he's got power. That's the one thing that Delidze has. He definitely has more power and uh, knockout ability than Kyle Dawkins. I think that's one thing that you can give the advantage to Delidze here against Dawkins. And then when you look at Dawkins' record, 11-2, and two, um, his nickname on here is actually the Darce Knight, Kyle Dawkins, and I actually really like that. That's a cool nickname that's super creative. I don't know why he doesn't use that in the UFC because I don't think he uses any type of nicknames, but he's fighting out of Philly, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He'll be cornered by his brother, who's a heavyweight in Chris Dawkins. And then probably, I think he works with Sean Brady out there too. He might, I'm not sure, but I know they're all from that Philly area. But the Darce Knight, Kyle Dawkins, he's coming off of that submission victory via Bravo choke or Darce choke in the first round at 4 minutes and 59 seconds over Jamie Pickett. Prior to that was the no contest against Kevin Holland. Before that, he lost the decision to Phil Hawes. Just got out-wrestled, out-controlled. Um, Taz just was, a, was too powerful for a guy like Dawkins. Prior to that, he fought a really highly decorated grappler in Dustin Stoltzfus at UFC 255, and he won that fight via unanimous decision. My favorite fight I've ever seen Kyle Dawkins in was his UFC debut against Brendan Allen at UFC on ESPN 12, Poirier versus Hooker. Um, an absolutely barn, an absolute barn burner. That's exactly what that fight was. It was back and forth, so many scrambles, so many changes of positions. Dawkins landing that straight left, right hook, landing the combos on the feet. Allen coming back, landing shots on the feet against Dawkins, hurting him, dropping him, constantly scrambling out of positions. I think Dawkins got the back at one point. Just a phenomenal fight. If you haven't watched Kyle Dawkins' UFC debut over Brendan Allen, go back and watch that fight. UFC on ESPN 12. Brendan Allen just got that win controversially I'll say over Jacob Melhoun at UFC 275 but we're not here to talk about that so when I break down the fight here's what I see Roman Delidze is a great Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist he's a great grappler his takedown ability is decent he's got good takedowns likes to work from that body lock looks to trip you but his his main bread and butter is those are those double leg takedowns he's going to try to get in on your hit, hips shoot those doubles take you down and control you. The problem is, even if he takes you down, he's not very active in any positions that he has when it comes to being in a dominant position on the floor. He he likes to control you. He likes to keep you up against the fence in that over-under position in a double underhook, you know, keep you up against the cage with that shoulder pressure and not allow you to circle off and get back to the center. I don't think that Delizze is going to be able to play that game against a guy like Kyle Dawkins who is a, a phenomenal Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist in and of his own right, but he is a much better striker than Delidze on the feet. We're going to see a big difference here in the striking, I believe. Now, I'm not saying Delidze is a bad striker. Like I said, he's got decent movement. 
good kicks, really solid left body kicks, left high kicks, good right outside low kicks. But it's going to be hard to land any clean technical shots against the Kyle Dawkins. And even if uh, Delidze lands a big shot on the feet and maybe stuns Dawkins, he's not going to get him out of there. I, I can't see that happening. Now, Delidze is 11-1, and one, or I'm sorry, 3-1 and one in the UFC. The only loss coming to Trevin Giles. Dawkins, on the other hand, is 2-2, two and two, I believe, in the UFC with wins over Stoltzfus and Jamie Pickett and then losses to Brendan Allen and Phil Hawes, which losing to Phil Hawes and Brendan Allen are definitely not um, a thing to hang your hat on. Maybe the Brendan Allen loss, but at the time when he fought him, Brendan Allen was very highly regarded, so you can't really knock Kyle Dawkins that, at that point. And I think if they fought now, I think Dawkins would – mop the floor with Brendan Allen. In my opinion, you can correct me or debate with me if you think that I'm wrong. But I think that Dawkins' striking is just so much better. He's got a beautiful right hook, a beautiful straight left, one one twos. He puts his combinations together beautifully. That's something that Kyle Dawkins has that I think a lot of people don't give him credit for. It's throwing three, four, five, six punch combinations. He can put it together. Touch, 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 right hook, left uppercut, right hook. One, two, three, three, two, one, two, three, three, two, uppercut you know, putting the combinations together. And if he gets those combinations in the face of Roman Delidze, he's going to get him panic shooting, and it can it can leave the neck open for, now we know, the person who's called the Darce Knight. And if you leave your neck open against Dawkins, I think Dawkins can lock up a submission and, and submit him. But I also think that Delidze is going to have the strength and power advantage. So I think we're going to see a lot of this fight when it's in close range, fought up against the cage in the over-under position looking to get the double-unders, constantly fighting for the pummeling. There's going to be a lot of pummeling here, a lot of shoulder strikes, a lot of knees to the legs, knees to the body. And I think that the thing is, Dawkins is going to start to take over in the second and the third round. Delidze is going to tire out, but he's still going to have the pop in his shots to land those combinations on the feet. The striking of Kyle Dawkins is levels above Delidze, but Delidze has enough power to shut his lights out, I believe. I mean, no, I don't think he can knock him out, but he can definitely hurt him. Delidze has good power in his kicks and in his punches, so I do think he can hurt Dawkins, so Dawkins does have to be a little bit careful. But I think the takedowns, the wrestling, is going to kind of stifle each other out in the first round, round and a half. But the longer the fight goes, that's when Dawkins is going to be able to take over with his pace, his combinations, his pressure. He's more active from the bottom, more active from the top when it comes to the ground game. Um, I think that he's going to be more dangerous. He's going to offer more danger to Roman Delidze than Delidze does to him. Um, Delidze doesn't impress me too much, but he is something that you have. He is somebody that I think Dawkins has to worry about in certain positions, especially with the strength that he possesses. But overall, I'm going to have to go with Kyle Dawkins here. I'm going to go with Kyle Dawkins to defeat Roman Delidze via a 29-28 unanimous decision. I could see a late submission if he's able to tire out Delidze, but I think that he's just going to grind him out. He's going to outstrike him on the feet. I think it's going to be a close first round in the second and third. That's where Dawkins is going to take over with his boxing, his combinations, shots to the face, you know, just pop, 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 boom, 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 boom. He's got great boxing, and I think that's something you'll see here. The straight left into the right hook, the right hook into the straight left, the jab into the right hook into the straight left hand. All that stuff's going to be open for Dawkins. The, the takedowns and the top control, I think, are going to be open towards the midpoint of the second round and into the third. So 29-28. Unanimous decision for Kyle Dawkins 
to defeat Roman Dolidze and hand him his second loss in the UFC. Now, when it comes to the odds for this fight, Dawkins is a pretty heavy favorite. We'll pull it up here. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. I told you I was sick. I wasn't kidding. Uh, here we go. Yeah, so Dawkins is a minus 235 favorite over Delidze. I know that's a big favorite line. So I definitely wouldn't be mad if you were like, yeah, I don't really want to touch that. You know, I could definitely see the reasons why. <clears throat> but I think Dawkins is one of your locks for this card if you're looking at it from a betting standpoint. I think Dawkins to win straight up or Dawkins to win by decision. I could see the Dawkins by submission line too. So I wouldn't really be be mad at you for any way that you attack it. Um, if you're looking to make more money, I would say probably run the Dawkins by decision because I do think that the Lidze is going to be durable and tough enough to last those 15 minutes, but I don't think he gets his hand raised if it hand raised against Dawkins if it goes to the judges scorecards. And then Dawkins straight up in a parlay along with another guy we're going to talk about later on in the card, I think is a great look for this card and this card specifically, but we'll get to that later. But yeah, I do think that Dawkins should be one of your locks for this week. And uh, you can, you can you know, not take it because of how high the favorite is at minus 235. But I do like Dawkins as a lock for this weekend. But my pick is Kyle Dawkins to defeat Roman Dolidze via 29-28 unanimous decision. All right. Now we move to a fight in the UFC's bantamweight division between Mr. Knockout, everybody's favorite, Mini Masvidal, Adrian Yanez, he comes into this fight with a record of 15 victories and three defeats. And he is going up against the durable, I guess the best way you could describe him is just a dog of a competitor in prime time, Tony Kelly, who holds a record of eight victories and two defeats. Um, this is a really, really solid fight, a really, really high level fight in my opinion. And I think a lot of people are completely writing off Tony Kelly because they just see the hype, the the knockouts that Adrian Yanez is able to, you know, showcase in the UFC, his his crisp striking, his crisp counter ability. And they're just kind of looking at Tony Kelly and being like, eh, another knockout for Adrian Yanez, eh, another knockout for Adrian Yanez. And, you know, I, I do see where you're coming from. Like the dude has a lot of wins. He's 5-0, and I believe, in the UFC. He might be 4-0, but I'll pull it up really quick and we can check. So he is 4-0 in the UFC. He's got three knockouts and one decision, a split decision over Davy Grant. I still think he won that fight against Davy Grant, but it definitely was close. Um, and Grant's one of the toughest veterans in that 135-pound division. So that's uh, definitely a good win for Adrian Yanez there. And then, you know, I think that just people are writing off Tony Kelly because of the knockouts that Adrian Yanez has, because he is 4-0 in the UFC. 5-0 if you count the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series, but that's not technically an official fight, so you can't count that. But 15-3 for Yanez, 9 KOs, 2 submissions, 4 decisions. And then on the Tony Kelly side, he is 12-2, uh, and two, I believe. Let's see. Oh, 8-2. Man, I'm just all over the place today. 8-2 for Tony Primetime Kelly. Three KOs, three submissions, and two decisions. Pretty evenly spread across the board. 
He's coming off a second-round TKO over Randy Costa and a unanimous decision over Ali Alkwasi in October of 2020. And then the fight over Randy Costa was December 2021. So he's coming back after about six months on the shelf. But prior to that fight in December, he was gone for over a year. So this isn't a big layoff for Tony Kelly. Prior to that, it was a decision loss to Kai Kamaka III at UFC 252. You know, he lost that fight, and that's one of the best fights I've ever seen. If you haven't watched that fight, go back and watch Kai Kamaka III versus Tony Primetime Kelly from UFC 252. Um, a barn burner, a back-and-forth barn burner. Kamaka took over later in the fight, but it was definitely close. I think that should have been a split decision in my opinion, but... You know, Tony Kelly's a gamer, man. Tony Kelly is really, really solid on the feet. He's got good footwork, good in and out movement. He switches stances from orthodox to southpaw, whether it's him stepping into orthodox, throwing a straight left, switching southpaw into the right hook, stepping back, jab, right low kick, jab, right body kick, one, two, right hook, left body kick, jab from southpaw, left body kick, left front kick to the body. He's constantly switching angles, constantly changing stances, but he's also constantly in your face putting the pressure on you and trying to drain you the longer the fight goes. He does get a little bit tired, you know, in the second and in the third, but Kelly's a gamer, man. He was down in the first round against Kai Kamaka. He came out in that second and in that third and right out the gate, just got in the face of Kamaka, landed a right hand, landed a straight left, got in the clinch, landed knees to the body. The most dangerous area for Adrian Yanez in this fight against Tony Kelly is going to be the kicking game, the body kicks and the high kicks and the inside and outside low kicks of Kelly and the work from inside the clinch, getting that single collar, getting the tie plumb, working the knees to the body, working the knees to the head, working the elbows. You saw him use it against Kamaka and he sucked the life out of him in that third and later on in the second. And you saw him do it also in the fight where he got that TKO in the second round over Randy Costa. I mean, the guy's got brutal power in his knees and in his elbows. I think we're going to see some of this fight taking place along the cage, and that's where Kelly's going to look to get in that tie plumb, land the knees to the body, land the elbows, land the knees to the head. I think we're going to see Kelly look to dirty it up and make it a dirty fight. Now, with Yanez, his boxing is some of the cleanest and crispest and fastest pans you'll ever see in the UFC. The counter ability he showcased against, uh, it wasn't Gustavo Lopez. Who was it? I don't want to get this wrong. Let's see. Uh, it was Gustavo Lopez. Okay, I was right. Even when I thought I was wrong, I was right. Against Gustavo Lopez, where he timed him stepping in off that switch stance combination, and boom, just countered him with a right hand. Right on the chin, dropped him, knocked him out. The high kick against Brady Wang from Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series, where he landed the combinations. Boom, 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 boom. Framed off, boom, left switch, high kick. Landed on his chin, knocked him out. I believe the uh, the Victor Rodriguez fight, I believe, was also a high kick. I might be thinking of the Victor Rodriguez fight. Yeah, okay, so the punches were on the Tuesday Night Contender Series, but the head kick was against Victor Rodriguez, that combination I just broke down for you. Um, yeah, and he fought Randy Costa as well. So there is a little bit of a comparison between both of these guys. They both got finishes over Randy Costa. He defeated Randy Costa via a second-round TKO, right? Yeah, second-round TKO, two minutes, 11 seconds in. And then you look at Tony Kelly. When he defeated 
Randy Costa, it was four minutes and 15 seconds. So both got second round TKOs. I honestly think that the Yanez one is a little bit more, I think that's a little bit more impressive because he did go through a lot of adversity. But the one thing I took from that Tony Kelly, Randy Costa, Randy Costa, Adrian Yanez set of fights is that Yanez was having a lot of trouble with the kicking game of Costa, the high kicks, the shots to the body, the question mark kicks, the switching stances into the left high kicks, the one, two, the high kick behind it. The kicking game of Costa was giving Yanez a lot of trouble and the jab of Costa was giving Yanez a lot of trouble until he started to get the timing and jab with Costa. He was jabbing for jab, jabbing for jab, jabbing for jab. Once he got him behind the jab, he knew that Costa wasn't going to be comfortable enough to throw his jab as much as he was before, which in turn would affect the ability he had to put together combinations. And that's when he was able to kind of walk him down, land the combinations, boom, rip the shots to the body. One, two, hook to the body, three, two up top. One, two, three, one, two, boom, drops Costa, jumps on him and gets the TKO. You know, I think that Yanez is definitely going to have the boxing advantage here. I think that Tony Kelly is going to have the kicking advantage. If Kelly can use that constant stance switching, those constant stance switches, land the left kicks to the body, land the right outside low kicks, get get Yanez up against the cage, land the knees to the body, land the elbows, I think Tony Kelly can make this a very, very interesting and close fight. I do not think that Tony Kelly should be heavily underestimated here. Um, I think that Tony Kelly is durable enough to last the full 15 minutes because he has not been knocked out or submitted in his career. The only two losses he has so far have come by way of decision. Um, I do think if anybody can put him out, it would probably be Yanez with his counter ability, the, the slickness and quickness in his hands, and just the ability to counter on a dime. You know, I, I do think that he does have the potential to do it, but I don't think he's going to do it in this fight. I think we're going to see a little bit more of a patient and measured Adrian Yanez here. I think he's going to use that jab from the beginning of the fight. I think he's going to look to use a lot of fakes. Fakes and feints, pop the jab, fake it, jab, left hook, fake the jab, jab, one, two, jab, fake, right to the body, one, two, three, one, two, hook to the body, cross, hook to the body. I think we're going to see a little bit more patient, measured version of a Yanez. I think he's going to use that front kick to the body. He's got a very good teep to the body. Um, but I do think Kelly's going to give him some trouble. I think Kelly's going to land some elbows up against the cage in the clinch, work with those knees to the body, elbows, uppercuts, you know, just work them the longer the fight goes. I mean, the guy's not going to quit on himself. That's something you definitely know about prime time. But when it comes to the prediction, I think that Yanez is going to land the bigger shots throughout 15 minutes. I think he's going to put together more combinations. I think the damage is going to be all over the face of Tony Kelly, but I do think Kelly's going to survive. I think Kelly's going to make it a very interesting, a very dangerous fight. And it's going to be the fan, the one of the best fights of the night. I wouldn't be surprised if we get an upset on the side of Tony Kelly here. I would not be surprised if Tony Kelly got a split decision against Yanez because he was able to turn it on in the late second and in the third round. Wouldn't surprise me one bit. I think the line here is a little bit inflated, but I understand the reasons why because of the hype and knockout ability that Adrian Yanez has had and the hype that he generates. It doesn't surprise me, but a minus 280 is too heavy for Adrian Yanez here. I think it should be sitting at my, like a minus 190 to a plus 170 for Tony Kelly. I think that's a way better line. I think this line is heavily inflated and a little bit ridiculous. 
like I said, if you want to take a shot at the dog, I mean, I wouldn't be mad at you for throwing a plus 235 on Tony Kelly. Him to win by decision is probably like a plus 700. So if you want to take the stab at it, I definitely wouldn't be mad at you. But I do think Giannis is going to pull it out. He's got the cleaner shots with the boxing. Kelly's got the cleaner shots with the kicking game and the and the clinch work. But I think that the damage, the combinations he puts together, you know, and the ability to land the crisper, cleaner shots over 15 minutes will carry your, carry Adrian Yanez to a decision against Tony Kelly. So my pick is Mr. Knockout Adrian Yanez to defeat Tony Kelly via 29-28 split decision. All right, and now we move to about on the main card in the welterweight division between a UFC veteran and Tim the Dirty Bird Means, who comes into the fight with a record of 32 victories, 12 defeats, one draw, and one no contest. And he's going up against a guy who's making a run at 170 pounds. After going 1-0 after defeating Cowboy or Alex Cowboy Oliveira, that is the former middleweight in Kevin Trailblazer Holland, who comes into this fight with a record of 22 victories, seven defeats, and one no contest. Uh, this is a good fight. And again, I think this is going to be a fight that's a lot closer than people may initially believe it to be. And it kind of reminds me of the Adrian Yanez and Tony Kelly fight that we just broke down. I think that a lot of people are writing off Tim Means because he's had some losses, because he's been knocked out, because he's been submitted. They're writing him off. And I don't think that Tim Means is completely out of this fight. I don't believe that to be the case at all. Tim Means has really, really solid boxing. He's got good head movement. His defense is pretty good. It's not the best, but he definitely has some good defense. Uh, let's see if we can pull it up. We'll go to UFC and we'll pull up the stats for the fight. Uh, let's see, view fight card. Uh, here. All right. So for this fight, Tim Means is uh, coming in at six foot two. Kevin Holland six three, and a six inch reach advantage for Holland, and that's something that he's going to have to use for the entirety of this fight, however long it lasts. He's gonna have to use that six inch reach advantage to keep. Tim Means at a distance to use those jabs, use long front kicks, use the inside and outside low kicks, you know, use high kicks, side kicks to the body, use that traditional martial arts style that he kind of came to fall in love with in the UFC. You know, when he first came into the UFC, those hopping side kicks, you know, stay at range, fight in and out. If you get into a clinch range or boxing range with Tim Means, Means can catch Holland on the chin and put him out. He's not got the best knockout power. He doesn't have like one hitter quitter power, but the guy's clean, crisp, and technical with his hands, and he knows how to put the combinations on you. He is a sharpshooter. If I could describe the Dirty Bird in one thing, it would be that he's a sharpshooter. The left straight to the body, the left straight up top to the head, the right hook followed up behind it, the one, two, three, two, the three, two getting off on an angle. If Kevin Holland stays around in boxing range for too long, against Tim Means, Means is going to light him up. And it, the, the fact that Kevin Holland is always kind of 
lackadaisical. He's always kind of that having fun inside the cage. And yeah, that allows you to be looser and allows you to kind of put the pace on him and put the pressure on the opponent and kind of, he could just flow with the fight wherever it goes. But if he's too lackadaisical here, if he plays around too much, he can get pieced up by Tim Means. Tim Means can take him down in a close round and control him from the side control. I do believe the longer the fight would be on the ground, Kevin Holland would probably be able to scramble out, get to a top position, work for a submission, you know, work his ground and pound, work the elbows off of his back. You know, he is scrambly. He is good. He does use his hips a lot. But I wouldn't be surprised if Tim Means got a takedown here or there in this fight. But the the crisp, clean, technical shots that Tim Means throws, you know, if he's able to get in that boxing and clinch range and land those combinations, he can give Kevin Holland a lot of trouble, and he can hurt Kevin Holland really bad. If he gets him up against the cage and gets him in that clinch, those elbows, the upward elbows, the, the over-the-top elbows, the one-two, two-to-the-body, elbow up top, upward elbow, those are going to cut up Kevin Holland if he plays around for too much. And, you know, against in the fight against Oliveira, Oliveira did hit him on the chin and kind of wobble him a little bit. So I wouldn't be surprised if Tim Means can hurt Kevin Holland here and maybe put him out. But we're going to continue to uh, go down the card, or I'm sorry, go down the stats here. Uh, he's got a three and a half inch leg reach advantage, does Tim Means over Kevin Holland. So he's going to, again, I mean, I think that's a little bit, I mean, I guess it says it in the stats, but I don't really think that that's going to be a that big of a factor in the fight. So, you know, win percentage breakdowns, 59% of the wins coming by way of KO or TKO for Kevin ha or uh, for Tim Means, 16% by submission and 25% by decision. And then on Kevin Holland's side, you have 55% by KO, TKO, 27% by submission, and 18% by decision. Both of these men don't like to go to decision. You got a three-round, 15-minute fight. Um, I, I think we're probably going to be looking at a finish on either side. If it goes to decision, I would probably lean Tim Means to get the nod on the judges' scorecards. I think the longer the fight goes, the more it plays into the hands of Tim Means. I think early, the first two rounds, that's where Kevin Holland probably has the best shot to either put him out or lock up a submission. And then... You know, in that third round, if it goes to a decision, I would probably think that Tim Means was able to get a couple takedowns and get in close range and land that straight left hand, land that right hook, land the one, two, land the two, three, land the left hook to the body, the straight left to the body, the jab up top, the straight left to the body, the straight left up top, the right hand and the right hook to the body. If he's able to start to put those combinations together, tie up Kevin Holland, get him up against the cage. You know, Kevin Holland, since he moves around so much, his balance is not the best. He kind of falls over his own feet sometimes. Sometimes he gets knocked off balance, and that can kind of have him giving up takedowns and stuff like that. Now, his takedown defense did look good against Alex Oliveira. It did look good against Kyle Dawkins for as long as the fight lasted. But, you know, I think that the longer the fight goes, Kevin Holland is never really going to have the best takedown defense. It's just not his style. And even if his takedown defense is good, if your balance is not great and if you get caught out of position lunging in on a shot or, you know, getting your feet tripped up in the clinch or maybe you throw a punch, you kind of, you know, fall over your own feet and you're kind of, you know, got to catch your balance for a second. That's where those takedowns are going to be open up, opened up for Tim Means. I don't necessarily think Means will look for takedowns unless it's closer to the end of the round. And then that's where I think he'll look for those takedowns to kind of close out the round strong and continue to get the nod on the judges' scorecards. But, you know, if we look at the overall record for both guys, 
we'll go to Tim Means first. Uh, yeah, he's got so 32 wins and 12 losses. He's got 19 wins by knockout or TKO, five by submission, and eight by decision. When it comes to losses, he has two TKO losses, five submission losses, and five decision losses. So pretty even along the board when it comes to the losses side with submissions, decisions, and KOs. And then on the on the win side, most of his wins coming by way of KO or TKO. He recently defeated Nicholas Dalby, Mike Perry, and Laureate, Laureano Starpoli. Uh, those were all by unanimous decision. Prior to that, his last loss is coming to Daniel D. Rod Rodriguez via guillotine choke submission in the second round. And then before that, he got a guillotine choke submission win over Tiago Alves. Prior to that, a knockout loss to Nico Price. A TKO win over Ricky Rainey. A split decision loss to Sergio Moraes. A decision loss to Bilal Muhammad. Split decision. That doesn't look too bad. That was back in November of 2017. Decision win over Alex Garcia. A submission loss via rear naked choke to Alex Oliveira. Kevin Holland's last win is a TKO over Alex Cowboy Oliveira. But they were at different points of their careers when the fight went down. So I don't think you can look too much into that. And uh, Kevin Holland did have some some rough spots in that fight. When you look at Kevin Holland's wins, you got 22 wins overall, 7 losses, 13 wins coming by way of KO or TKO, 5 submissions and 4 decisions. When you look at the losses, Kevin Holland's never been knocked out before. He's got 2 submission losses on his record and 5 decision losses. Um, So never been knocked out before in his career. I do think if Tim Means does hit Kevin Holland on the chin, with the weight cut that he, you know, has to go through to make 170 now, I wouldn't be surprised if Kevin Holland gets hurt by Tim Means and potentially put out. But when it comes down to the actual win for the fight, like who do I think is going to take the fight? Who do I think is going to have more advantage the longer it goes? I think that first round, round and a half, is going to be very hard for Tim Means to kind of get the timing of Kevin Holland. Like I said, I think the longer it goes in that 15-minute fight, the long, the more time that Tim Means has, the more that he can, uh, you know, pick up on the pace, land the combinations. You know, he kind of picks up the longer the fight goes, and he looks better the longer the rounds go on. But early on, I think that it is live for Kevin Holland to catch Tim Means and rock him, maybe hurt him on the feet, lock up a submission. I think that's a possibility. Or hurt him on the feet overall and then knock him out just by landing the bigger shots. He does possess power. The shot he caught caught Alex Cowboy Oliveira with was a little short right hook that dropped him, and then he jumped on him and landed the ground and pound. Um, I'm going to go with Kevin Holland here, but I definitely think this is close to a 50-50, 55-45 fight. I think this is a very close fight overall, a lot closer than people are giving Tim Means credit for. The line is absolutely ridiculous. Holland sits at a minus 280 favorite to a plus 225 dog for Tim Means. Wouldn't be mad at you if you took the shot on Tim Means, but I don't think that that's definite. That's not the best idea. I would still ride with Kevin Holland. If you're going to take the shot, if you're going to bet Kevin Holland, you're more than likely going to do it in a parlay. Betting that straight up, there's really no upside. Betting Kevin Holland by knockout or TKO, you're going to get plus money. I think that's the way to go if you're going to bet on this fight. If you're looking at it from a betting perspective, Bet on Holland to win by KOTKO. You're going to get a better line, and that's probably how the fight's going to end if Holland does get his hand raised. So I'm going to go with Trailblazer here. I'm going to go with Trailblazer. I think he's going to use that length, catch Tim Means stepping in with an elbow, 
land the one-two that he possesses, a very long-rangey one-two. You saw it showcased against Joaquin Buckley as well. I think he's going to land that one-two, you know, land an elbow off the break, boom, boom, one-two, drop Tim Means, jump on him, and get a TKO finish. So my pick is Kevin Trailblazer Holland to go 2-0 and at 170 pounds in the UFC by defeating Tim Means via a second-round TKO victory. I could see it in the first, but I'm going to give Tim, Tim Means more credit there. The longer the fight goes, though, I do think it favors the Dirty Bird. But my pick is Kevin Trailblazer Holland to defeat Tim the Dirty Bird Means via second-round TKO. All right, and now we move to the main card, and the main card opener in the lightweight division between two veterans of the sport. This is like if there was a UFC Legends League or a UFC OG League, this would be one of the marquee fights. In the lightweight division, you've got Donald Cowboy Cerrone, who comes into this fight with a record of 36 victories, 16 defeats, and two no contests, going up against Joe Lozon, who comes into this fight with a record of 28 victories and 16 defeats. I believe he used to be have a nickname of Joe J-Lo Lozon. He might still have a nickname. Um, if I'm wrong, then, you know, forgive me. But let's see if I can pull it up. Let's see. Joe Lozon. Nah, see, he doesn't have the nickname anymore, but I believe he, they used to call him Joe J-Lo Lozon. So if I'm wrong, you know, then I'm wrong. But I feel like he had... Yeah, Joe J-Lo Lozon. I was right. He did used to have that nickname, and he comes into this fight with a record of 28 victories and 16 defeats. So each man each man has the same amount of defeats, 16, 16 losses. You know, it's a lot of losses. But wins, uh, Cowboy has eight more wins. Two no contests, which, you know, that's two more fights to his name, but eight more wins than Joe Lozon. Now, if you look... At the stats. I mean, honestly, I'm just going to come out and say it. Both of these guys are at the tail end of their career. I, I think that Donald Cowboy Cerrone has a little bit more left in the tank compared to a, J, a Joe Lozon. But you've always got to be worried about Cowboy Cerrone in that first round because you never know. He always comes out a little bit gun shy in that first round, and that's when you can get him out of there. He's been finishing the first round a lot, it's happened multiple times throughout his career. He almost got finished again in the first round against Robbie Lawler, but he was able to come back. And even though he lost that fight, I count that Robbie Lawler fight as one of the best performances of Cerrone's career. I think in recent years, we're not going to count when he was on that crazy tear at lightweight before he fought RDA and then ended up losing, you know, for the championship. But when he went into that second run, you know, right before he lost to Tony Ferguson at UFC 238, I think the performance against Ally Quinta is one of the best of his career. I think that win over um, Alexander Hernandez was a great fight. And I think that the victory or the loss to, to Robbie Lawler, even though it was a losing effort, one of his best fights. And I think he did very well in that fight. He got Robbie Lawler down. I'll wrestle them, you know, came back from adversity, struck with him on the feet. I, I That's one of my favorite cowboy fights is the fight against Robbie Lawler. And I believe UFC 2... Ooh, was it two? What what fight card was that on? UFC two forty. I think it was the fight where where um 
John Jones and Cormier had their rematch. So what was that? UFC 214? Yeah, that was it. UFC 214, I believe. And I did not look that up just in case because you guys can't see me. Um, he When he fought Robbie Lawler at UFC 214. That's one of my favorite fights. But um, you look at Joe, Joe Lozon and he's been out of MMA for a long time. And then he came back and defeated Joe, or I'm sorry, Jonathan J.S.P. Pierce. His last fight, October 18th, 2019, UFC Fight Night, Reyes versus Weidman. So, you know, you're looking at almost a three-year layoff for Joe Lozon. Prior to that, he had three back-to-back-to-back losses. A decision to Stevie Ray. Um, It says Stephen Ray, but I believe it's Stevie Ray. A A majority decision loss. A TKO in the first round to Clay Guida. And a TKO doctor stoppage at the end of the second round. Um, at UFC 223, Habib versus Iaquinta. So he fought in 2018, one time in 2018, one time in 2019, and then hasn't fought since then. Now, if you look at Donald Cowboy Cerrone, we're just going to pull it up like this. So give me one second. His last fight came against... Alex Morano at UFC on ESPN 24, Rodriguez versus Watterson on May 8th. So almost a year since Cowboy has fought. I think that's going to rejuvenate him a bit. You know, it's been three years since Lozon has fought, almost three years. Um, It's been about a year since we've seen Cowboy in there. At the day of the fight, it's actually going to be 364 days since we've seen Cowboy in the octagon. He lost to Alex Morano via first-round TKO. Prior to that, a no contest um, to Nico Price. Uh, it was a draw, but it says no contest. I believe something happened, but it, w- it was scored a draw. Um, prior to that, a loss to Anthony Pettis. A lot of people thought that Cowboy won that fight at UFC 249, but um, he ended up losing via decision. A lot of people believe that Cowboy won that, and then prior to that, he got that TKO in the first round that lost to the notorious Conor McGregor. And then prior to that, a TKO in the first round to Justin Gaethje. Prior to that, a TKO in the second round. Um, going into the third round against Tony Elkakui Ferguson. So his last win came at UFC Fight Night I Quinta versus Cowboy in May of 2019. May is actually a pretty significant month for these two, um, especially for Cowboy and their fights taking place in May. It doesn't really mean anything, but you know, if you like to play off that superstitious stuff when it comes to MMA, then maybe it's something to look into. Maybe May is going to be the lucky month for Cowboy. Um, his last win, May 2019. Joe Lozon's last win, 2019. But Cowboy has fought one, two, three, four, five, six more times. All losses, one draw. So one draw, five losses. You know, 0, 5, and 1 in his last six fights. Um, Lozon is, if we're going off last six fights, he is... He is two and four in his last six. So 0-5 and one, two and four. Both of these guys, veterans, both of these guys at the tail end of their careers. I think we know that. Um, I think if Lozon wants to win this fight, he's got to come out heavy and hard in the first round. He's got to push Cowboy back, get in his face, land the one-two, land the left hook, push Cowboy up against the cage, try to work the elbows and knees from the clinch, but you got to hurt Cowboy in the first round and you got to get him out of there. After the first round, Cowboy is going to take over in the second, take over in the third, 
probably get a finish or easily get a decision. I don't see Lozon getting a decision here. If Lozon's going to win, he's got to bum rush him. He's got to push Cowboy back. Cowboy's usually a notoriously slow starter. So if you're going to get Cerrone out of there, you have to get him out of there early, hurt him early, like he did against Jonathan J.S.P. Pierce in his last fight. Hurt him with the one-two, hurt him with the left hook right hand, jumped on him, got him in that half Nelson, and um, you know, rain down ground and pound from the back. Had back mount, had his hooks in, but had him in the the half Nelson, reaching around the head, controlling him, boom, just landing ground and pound. The thing I noticed about Lozon in that fight is he has he had a lot of pop in his shots. His ground and pound was heavy, it was hard. And even the shot on the feet, it didn't look like anything super heavy, but it hurt Jonathan Pierce. It hurt him bad. It rocked him. It hurt him. And, you know, I think that's, you know, Lozon has some power. I would not bet on this fight. If you're betting, I would not bet on this fight at all. 100% I would not touch this fight with a 10-foot pole because they're both veterans. They're both at the tail end of his career, their careers. But you can't bank 100% on Cowboy. Um, If I was going to lean aside, I would lean Cowboy. But if you're betting, I would stay away from it because you can't because the first round is always going to be scary in a Cerrone fight. and. If I'm breaking it down, if I'm going to pick a winner, I think that Cowboy survives the first round. I think Lozon hurts him early, but he's able to survive kind of like he did in the Nico Price fight. And then I think that um, he's going to just, you know, start landing his combination, start landing that lead uppercut, the one-two lead uppercut, right high kick, one-two high kick behind it, jab, jab, low kick, jab, right body kick, one-two lead high, one-two Cross lead, high kick, jab, you know, front kick to the body. I mean, just traditional cowboy Muay Thai combos. He's going to start putting them together. I think he's going to hurt Lozon on the feet, drop him, and get a TKO here. Um, I, I, I'm always worried to pick Cerrone now, especially at this point in his career. I be, would be worried to pick either guy. I wouldn't be mad at you for picking the Lozon side because I think odds-wise, I think it's pretty close. Cowboy probably is a favorite, but... Let's check it out. Um, let's see. We're going to go to Oliver versus Gaethje because they list the odds here. So we'll go um, Cowboys a minus 165 favorite to a plus 145 for Lozon. I like that line. I think it's good. Uh, Cerrone's last few fights, you know, haven't been great. Lozon hasn't fought in three years, almost three years. So, you know, I think it's basically a pick em, but I would lean more Cerrone. I would probably go 65-35 Cerrone. So I'm going to go Donald Cowboy Cerrone to survive an early onslaught in the first round, start landing those knees to the body, the front kicks, the one-two low kicks, you know, the combinations on the feet, and getting a second-round TKO victory over Joe Lozon. So Cerrone to defeat Lozon via second-round TKO. All right, and now we move to the main event of the evening and a pure, unadulterated, personified firefight in the UFC's featherweight division. You have a battle between top 10 ranked contenders and the number four ranked Kelvin Cater coming into the fight with a record of 23 victories and five defeats going up against the number seven ranked Josh Emmett who comes into the fight with a phenomenal record of 17 victories and two defeats. Man, what a great fight this is and what a great main event we're getting for this fight night. The main event this weekend and then next weekend with Mateus Gamrot and Armin Saryukian, 
Great main events back-to-back. Great contender fights. Good competitive fights in the divisions. I'm super excited for this main event. Now, I've talked about Kelvin Cater multiple times on this podcast. That's my boy. Kelvin Cater's always been my boy. He's been one of my favorite fighters in the UFC before he even was ranked, before he even got into those rankings. I was always on Kelvin Cater. Got to see him knock out Ricardo Lamas live at UFC 238 at the United Center. Um, I rode with him pretty heavy to beat Max Holloway. That one obviously didn't go our way, but he came back and looked probably the best he's ever looked against Giga Chikadze. Just a complete, well-rounded, all-around mixed martial arts performance. The wrestling, the defense, the counter ability, the counter uppercuts, the elbows to close the distance, the one-twos, the one-two slip backs, shoulder roll into the right uppercut. I mean, he looked the best he's ever looked, and I think we got an evolved version of Kelvin Cater after that Max Holloway loss. And you look at the side of Josh Emmett, number seven in the U- in the UFC's featherweight division. He scored at least one knockdown in every single one of his UFC fights in his career so far. Knock knockdown against Dan Ige, knockdowns against I mean, like I said, a knockdown in every one of his fights. So this guy, he may not have the best volume. He may not have the best, you know, ability to put combinations together. But if this guy closes that distance and lands that right hand over the top, he can put out just about anybody. That straight right, that overhand right, that switch stance straight left as he cuts you off if you're an orthodox like he did against Shane Burgos. If he lands on your chin with his power and his speed, he can put anybody out. And Kelvin Cater's going to have to look out over that jab for that overhand right of Josh Emmett. Because I know Kelvin Cater's got a chin. I know he can take some shots. But man, if he gets cracked on the chin by Josh Emmett, it could be over before it even gets started. And that's definitely something that Kelvin Cater's going to have to look out for. Now, Josh Emmett is a decorated championship wrestler. He's got a highly decorated wrestling background. But we never see him use it. He doesn't shoot takedowns in the UFC. He really doesn't. You know, I think he shot maybe one or two takedowns in his entire career. Um, He's not looking to shoot takedowns. That's just not who he is. And I don't necessarily think he's going to try to use his wrestling against Kelvin either because Kelvin is going to entertain that toe-to-toe boxing match. But if Kelvin plays it too reckless and gets goes toe-to-toe with Emmett for too long, man, Emmett's speed with that right hand I mean, it could put Kelvin out. I know Kelvin's got a chin. I know he's never been knocked out. I know he got hurt by Max Holloway, took all that damage. You know, but Emmett's a different breed, man. If Emmett catches Kelvin over the jab with that overhand right, the fight could be over extremely quickly. Like, I don't think people understand. Like, to get a knockdown in every one of your UFC fights, which in total comes out to about, let's see, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. He's got 10 fights in the UFC. Scored at least one knockdown in every single one. Knocked down uh, Shane Burgos, I believe, twice in their fight. Knocked down Jeremy Stevens. I mean, the guy puts you on ice. I mean, he, he doesn't finish everybody, but he's got the power to knock out just about anybody. Even the Michael Johnson fight. Michael Johnson was on his way to winning that decision on the judges' scorecards. He looked great at 45. Emmett gets to the outside of that lead right foot with that faint left hook. Boom! Comes over the top. Beautiful shot. Lands right on the chin of Michael Johnson. Puts him out cold. He's got power for a full 15 minutes. Now, the question is, this is a main event. Does he have power for a full 25-minute fight? 
I think he still will carry the power, but I don't think against a guy like Kelvin, who's got the volume, got the counter ability, and got the clean, crisp boxing, probably the best boxing, one of the best boxers in the UFC, one of the best and most clean boxers in that featherweight division. Against a guy like that, I don't think that power is going to really have a place in the fourth and fifth round, but he's still going to have it. And if he lands on the chin of Kelvin, he can definitely hurt him and not and put him out. The problem with this fight, though, is the volume. But let's talk about the stats really quick before we go into like the full breakdown. We'll talk about the stats. <coughs> Kelvin is going to have a two-inch reach advantage and a five-inch height advantage. 5'11 for Kelvin Cater, 5'6 for Josh Emmett, 72-inch reach for Kelvin, 70-inch reach for Emmett. Uh, Half-inch leg reach advantage for Kelvin. I don't really think that's going to play much of a factor, but that two-inch reach advantage, if he can keep Emmett behind that jab, then that can definitely play a factor and be the story of the fight. Win percentages for both guys, 48% of the wins coming by way of knockout for Kelvin Cater, 9% by submission and 43% by decision. For Emmett, 35% of the wins coming by way of KO, 12% by submission, and 53% by decision. Like I said, Emmett's got power. He can hurt just about anyone. He's knocked down a lot of guys, but he doesn't finish everybody. Only a 35% knockout victory rate over 10 fights in the UFC. He doesn't knock out everybody, but he does hurt them and drop them. He just sometimes can't find the power to put them out. A beautiful right hand into the left hook against Ricardo Lamas, you know, a beautiful uh, overhand right against Michael Johnson, uh, dropped Dan Ige with an overhand right, you know, or knocked out Mirsad Bektic, dropped him with a jab. Like, he's got power, but he doesn't put away everybody. And I don't think that a guy as durable and, you know, as durable and long-lasting as Kelvin Cater, I don't think that knockout's really going to be there much for Emmett in this fight. He does have the power. He probably will hurt him. He might drop him but I don't necessarily think he's got the ability to get Kelvin out of there. And I don't think he's going to fall back on the wrestling. This would be a smart fight to do so, but he doesn't use it. He's a striker. He he sits on the outside. He plays with the fakes and feints, plays with the hands, and looks for an opportunity to get that outside foot if you're southpaw or get that angle if you're an orthodox and land the overhand right, land the straight right down the middle, land the switch stance straight left like he did against Burgos. He looks for an opportunity to land that power. He plays around, loses the round, boom, finds a way to land that power. That's how Emmett fights. When you look at average fight time, uh, you got 14 minutes and 40 seconds for Kelvin to 11 minutes and 59 seconds for Emmett. And then, uh, like I said, Kelvin's got more knockouts and finishes than Josh Emmett does. Almost a 50% knockout win rate for Kelvin to a 35% knockout win rate for Emmett. He's got more knockdowns, though. Like I said, he puts somebody down. 1.38 knockdowns per 15-minute fight for Emmett to 0.51 knockdowns for Kelvin Cater. <coughs> Significant strikes landed per minute, 5.19 on the side of Cater to 4.28 for Emmett. 41% significant strike accuracy for Kelvin to a 39% for Josh Emmett, so very close. Strikes absorbed per minute, Kelvin takes more shots, 7.64 to 4.1. For Josh Emmett, I feel like those absorbed per minute strikes, like, I feel like that was heavily skewed by that Holloway fight because he took like 450, 500 shots to the head. Still made it out, still got through the five rounds, but I feel like those stats were heavily upped because of that fight. And man, that fight was crazy. 
Defense overall, Emmett has the better defense. 62% striking defense for Emmett to 52% defense for Kelvin Cater. Grappling, uh, 1.25 takedowns per 15-minute fight for Josh Emmett. Uh, 0.51 for Kelvin. Takedown accuracy, 29% for Cater to 47% for Emmett. Takedown defense, though, almost a 90% takedown defense for Kelvin Cater compared to 58% takedown defense for Emmett. 0.1 submissions per 15-minute fight on the side of Kelvin to 0.13 for the side of Josh Emmett. Um, I, I honestly think that this is going to be a fight where after the first round, round and a half, Kelvin's going to take over and take over big. Um, the jab of Kelvin is going to be the key against a guy like Emmett, but he's going to have to throw it a little bit different from other fights because I do think Kelvin has the crisper technique. I do think there's way less windup with Kelvin. We know that. He's one of the best boxers in the UFC. The combination, the volume striking, three, four punch combos, the counter ability, being able to step back, time that rear uppercut like he did against Burgos. Step back, boom, catch him coming in like he did against ja, uh, Zabit, like he did against Kel... Uh, I keep wanting to say Kelvin Cater, but I'm not. Giga Chikadze against Giga Chikadze, against Shane Burgos, against Zabit. He always times you stepping in with that rear uppercut. One, two, boom, boom, fade back, right uppercut. Fade back, right uppercut, straight right, left hook, one, two. You know, he's got the ability to put the combinations together. The thing that he has to do in this fight, I think that's going to make a big difference, is he's going to have to throw the two, one instead of the one, two, or feint the two, then throw the one, then throw the one, one, two. Because if you can use those feints to set up the jab, pop the jab, boom, jab, feint, boom, feint, left hook, feint, jab, left hook, right hand. That little pause, that little stutter in those combinations is where Josh Emmett is going to freeze or overcommit with the right hand and then on the pullback get countered with a left hook, get countered with the 3-2. I could see Emmett overcommitting on a right hand, Kelvin briefly stepping back, then stepping into range and landing the 3-2 like he did against Lamas and hurting Emmett and putting him out. I think Kelvin's got the ability to close the show here against Emmett. But he's going to have to throw the 2-1 and not the jab. You can't fight. Like, he's going to have to fight behind the jab for the entirety of this fight against Emmett. But he can't get predictable with the timing because all Emmett needs to do is time it, slip inside the jab, and come over the top with the overhand right. That's going to be the weapon for Josh Emmett. Time the jab, come over the top, land the right hand. As he throws the jab, parry it with the rear hand. Parry it with the rear hand and then switch, split cross with the straight left down the middle, get off on the outside, right hook, straight left. The switch straight left and the overhand right over the jab of Kelvin are going to be the weapons for Josh Emmett in this fight. But I don't think he's going to have the avenue to get to where he needs to be, and I think Kelvin's going to be piecing him up all along the way. I think, like I said, the 2-1, not the 1-2, is going to be what I think Kelvin employs here. Jab, feint the jab, cross, jab. Two, one, one, faint the cross, boom, pop the jab, 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 cross, two, three, two, one, you know, mixing it up with the cross before the jab or the faint before the jab, mixing up the timing is going to carry Kelvin very far in this fight. And I don't think that Josh Emmett can last for 25 minutes against a guy with the volume, pace, pressure, and clean technique of a Kelvin Cater. So overall, my pick, I'm going to go with Kelvin Cater to get the finish here over Josh Emmett. I think he's going to get a <coughs> I'm going to go with a third round TKO victory for Kelvin Cater. 
You know what? Switch it. I'm going to go fourth round. We're going to go fourth round. A fourth round TKO victory for Kelvin Cater over Josh Emmett. I think the volume, I think the counter ability, mixing up the timing with the jab and then following up with the right hand, landing the left hook as Emmett overcommits on the right hand. That's actually going to be what I think the finish is. As Emmett throws the right hand, I think we're going to see Kelvin step off on an angle, counter with the three as a measurement, and then come down the center with the right hand, drop Emmett, jump on him, and get the TKO. So my pick is Kelvin Cater, the number four-ranked featherweight in the division, to defeat the number seven-ranked Josh Emmett via a fourth-round TKO victory. And when you're looking at the betting line, I mean, Kelvin's sitting at around a minus 225, 235 favorite to a plus 185, plus 190 for Emmett. I think the line is right here. Um, I think it could be a little bit closer, but I definitely see why they lined it the way that they did. I think Kelvin's a lock. We talked about Dawkins being a lock earlier on in the card. I think Kelvin's the other lock on the card, man. I think pairing Dawkins and Cater in a two-fighter parlay is the best play for the card. And then maybe locking up a parlay with Kelvin to win by knockout. And then with Kyle Dawkins and then maybe an Adrian Yanez by decision. I think Yanez by decision, Cater by KO, and a Kyle Dawkins win is another good parlay. Um, I think I think Dawkins by decision, Cater by KO. I mean, you can play with the props in these fights, but I definitely think Kelvin is your main lock for the card along with Kyle Dawkins who opens up the card for us. All right, that's going to be it for this episode of the Touch Em Up podcast for in my UFC oh, UFC Austin preview predictions and analysis. This podcast is available anywhere you get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, Breaker, and many, many more. This episode will be up on YouTube with the edits, um, uploaded as individual fight predictions and most likely a full fight card prediction breakdown video. But get this out to anybody you know who's a fan of mixed martial arts and professional wrestling. Anybody you know who watches the UFC, whether it's casual or hardcore fan. Anybody you know who's trying to get into MMA. Point them to Double M and the Touch Em Up podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Have a good night, everybody, and enjoy the fights this weekend.